0: Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in?
1: And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. I promised at the beginning of this series that we weren't going to get into deconstructing Bible scripture, but our friend Tiffany just can't help herself. Even the people who claim that the earth is only 6,000 years old
0: and the flood covered the known earth, therefore the whole earth, like that doesn't even make logical sense because we'd still be underwater. (laughs) That much water can't evaporate and then continue to rain back down. I mean, that doesn't
1: even pass the most basic logical questioning. If we're talking about church and faith, the Bible goes hand in hand for her. As a little one, her big goal was to win the sword drills. I was also a sword drill champion. What is a sword <gasps> drill?
0: You don't know what a sword drill is? No, I don't. Oh, you are going to hell. So, <laughs> it's a competition for finding scripture verses. And you hold your Bible, and they'll shout out a random reference. Hey, find it, oh, read it. And then you win. But yeah, we had sword <laughs> drill competitions all the time uh-huh. in Sunday school. That was a big deal. And you couldn't like be going like this with your thumbs and like cheating. Like You had to hold it like this. <laughs> just hold the front and back. You just hold it
1: like this. Ready to go.
0: Find your thing.
1: Last episode, Keith shared his outlook, that the stories of the Bible can be beautiful and powerful. Tiffany feels the same way. Even now, she plans her Bible study into her day.
0: So there's, a, there's the, the lectionaries for Sundays, but there's also daily readings. It makes you go through the whole Bible in three years. There's a website where you can import those to your calendar, which I have. Oh, look so, at you. Oh, my gosh. So I have the readings up here on my calendar, and then I open that up for today, and then it's got a link to the scriptures, and then I read it right there.
1: Dang, dude! So you're taking your Bible reading very seriously. I do. Okay, That's
0: what I'm saying I do. I mean, I don't do it every day, but close. Like there's today's readings. So there's always an Old Testament, a Psalm, a Gospel, a New Testament. So growing up, she was. I was always very the good church girl. I was baptized when I was five. I remember it
1: very clearly. But that doesn't mean she hasn't shamed her parents and made her evangelical friends' heads explode with her current views of the Bible and its application.
0: Using my brain for good, basically, and asking these questions and saying, that doesn't make sense. And what does it
1: actually say? Where do you get this from this? So we're heading to Phoenix, Arizona, where Tiffany grew up with two Mennonite parents one younger brother, and lots of boundaries. My parents actually moved there as basically missionaries-ish. Missionaries to Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, Well,
0: but more like missionary slash church planters. Oh, okay. As much as that existed back then, because they are Mennonite brethren. Oh. And that was my dad's out of Vietnam, because he was a conscientious objector so it was go into the service oriented thing with the Mennonite church instead of going to war but they planted a little church called Palm Glen Mennonite Church and my dad worked in a a, the print shop at the hospital my mom worked in the doctor's office at the hospital and then on the weekends on Sundays they they ran this little church my mom played piano and organ and Dad taught Sunday school, and they also, like, mowed the grass and whatever. They did all this stuff, and that was, you know, they got paid, like, 12 cents a day or whatever, something crazy like that. And they made a good, solid circle of friends who they've actually, some of them, stayed friends since then. Then, as happens frequently. Uh, They actually left that church because the pastor that came, like, right around when I was born never visited them and never really took care of the people at all. He was kind of an egomaniac. And so they ended up going to a Baptist church, which is doctrinally basically the same as Mennonites. They just proselytize, whereas Mennonites don't. Okay. That's the only big difference. So they started going to this church, which at the time had 500 people. They had a very charismatic pastor who actually did remember everyone's name when he met them, which freaked them out and thought they thought it was cool, you know. Cult leaders are like that. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so the church actually expanded and grew, and they built a bigger campus and moved into it in 1978. At the height of it in the 80s, I think the church had around 12 to 13,000 people wow. that went and The sanctuary held 6,000, and there were three services on a Sunday, and it was a giant... Entity. You know, it was basically a small town. Yeah. Uh there was a family life center with a with a full like roller skating rink and basketball courts and racquetball courts and upstairs was like aerobic rooms and um they had a deli that you could like buy food there. Like oh and the burgers were not bad and it was weird to sell burgers at a gym, but whatever. <laughs> uh they had soccer fields and there were like intramural soccer leagues like within the church, tennis courts. It was kind of like a hexagon kind of shaped uh-huh. thing. It's whatever. like the Facebook campus. We basically. called it. We called it the Baptodome. <laughs> it was Southern Baptist, and the pastor was a big personality. It was all centered around his personality, as these mega
1: churches tend to be. There were great things about her experience at the Baptodome.
0: We were always very involved in the music programs. So one of the things about that ginormous church
1: was the incredibly solid music program, and of course. There were problems or abuses built into the power structure.
0: It was interesting that the music minister that was there for a lot of my childhood was married, but completely gay hmm. and had a whole stable of baritones that he would <laughs> cavort with. But that was all shoved under the rug. The, the pattern at that church was there was a lot of, in the leadership, a lot of Bad actors. Not that being gay is bad, but cheating on your spouse is not great. Correct. Uh, so cheating on spouses, same or opposite sex, whatever, and they would just be quote called to other areas of ministry and uh-huh. go away. There was not accountability yeah. associated. So that happened a lot at that church. But I was always involved in the music program. So what do you mean by music program? Okay, so it was a music. Extravaganza. So the church had a choir of like 250, 300 people and a full orchestra every Sunday. Oh my gosh. And then there was a whole children's choir program that started in four year olds and went up through high school. And it was actually rigorous. The Southern Baptists kill it when it comes to children's music curriculum, it's solid, better than most schools. And then I started taking piano when I was seven. I always sang. I started being able to harmonize by ear when I was like ten, just so. When I was eleven, my mom decided she wanted to play handbell, so I joined handbells with my mom, and so I played in the handbell choir with a bunch of old ladies and an eleven-year-old. <laughs> we would perform like on Easter Sunday, like the choir was like this tiered thing up in the front the baptistry in the middle because Baptist, and then there was this le- ledge up here and the handbills were up here and we would play up here and they would line brass like standing on the steps on the side and play this whole you know easter it's this giant pageantry right and so i would have recurring nightmares like i knew the orchestra members and i remember this woman nancy who played the oboe and she had a phd in oboe and she was a professor at asu i would have recurring dreams of accidentally throwing my handbell, like, overshooting it, and it flies out of my hands, and I killed her. Like, it landed on her, and it killed her. I'm, like, 11, <laughs> night before Easter Sunday, and I'm having nightmares about killing the woodwind section with my handbell. It was, like,
1: <laughs> horrifying. She also sang in ensembles and whatnot. Then her freshman year of high school, they moved to a new church because...
0: We had this youth pastor who was doing all this rock and roll stuff, and it was that, you know, that's the music of the devil type thing. You know, it was very, like, he was trying to be one of those rock people, you know, and it was, and my parents were like, no, music, devil music kind of thing, because they still had that Mennonite situation. Mm-hmm. We started going to a Baptist church that wasn't Southern Baptist, but it was even more conservative, like super locked down Baptist. Like women shouldn't wear shorts type conservative.
1: So, no Jesus rock and roll and now a church without shorts. Plus, and this whole time
0: PS, my brother and I are both in private Christian schools. Okay. The public school was a non-starter for my parents. Godless public school, no. Mm-hmm. So, it was very much we go to private Christian schools and we make whatever sacrifices necessary for that to happen. So, I am deeply marinated in the Jesus juice. Uh my entire life with the church every time it's open we're there Sunday morning Sunday night Wednesday night private Christian schools where I'm memorizing giant chunks of scripture for grades so just always very tightly controlled plus these restrictions it was very minimal TV pretty much no movies like hardly any movies okay certainly no secular music
1: Like, very locked down. What music did you listen to?
0: There was a Christian radio station called Family Life Radio. And so we listened to them a lot. But also, I mean, I totally listened to secular music on the down low. (laughs) I did a lot of stuff on the down low. But, like, watched TV shows. I was very into soap operas. Watched TV shows, listened to music I wasn't supposed to, like, on the down low. Because, like I said, I've always kind of had this independent thinking. So my thought was always... I'll follow the rules unless I think they're stupid. And if I think they're stupid, I'm not doing it. Well, so,
1: yeah, those kind of rules don't count, so.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So I would watch the TV shows, listen to the music, and be fine, you know? And that was that was my rebellion. Like, I really didn't sneak out. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't get drunk. Like, I didn't do anything. But I just, like, thought for myself, that was my rebellion,
1: you know? <laughs> her sophomore year of Bible class, she heard two rules that got her wheels turning, This is the moment that started it.
0: My teacher, our sophomore year teacher, and Bible teacher. He said there were two rules in his class. And again, this is ironic because he's still conservative evangelical. Number one, don't put God in a box. So in this classroom, we don't put God in a box. We're going to see who God is. Which again, God still performed only within the constraints of what he believed God would do. But... I think that idea of not putting God in a box has always been important to me because I don't want to follow or worship a God that I can manage and I can control and that I can predict. What's the point? Might as well follow you.
1: (laughs) You can if you want (laughs) to. No offense. And I, you know,
0: you are worthy, (laughs) but like if I'm looking for a higher power, I want something that's a little bit out of my, out of my space. And then the second one, this is the mind blower. Okay, I'm ready. Walk with God and do whatever you want
1: to do. I definitely did not ever receive the do whatever you want to do message.
0: Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, theoretically, you'll want to do the right things if right? you're walking with God. Right. That's, because it's, it's another way of saying, saying seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's the same concept. Mm-hmm. Seek first God's kingdom, walk with God and do whatever you want to do.
1: Then the week before her senior year started, everything changed. My parents' marriage hit a wall. Mm. Uh, My dad owned
0: a business. He was running the business. My mom worked for him for about 17 years. Colossally bad idea, but that's what they did, so whatever. So their marriage hit kind of a a wall, and my dad's like, "I, I think I can't be here anymore. I need to take off for a minute. And it was like Wednesday before my senior year starts on Monday. And I worked there, too, in the print shop. And so uh, it was a rough few weeks there, Mm -hmm. as one might imagine. Yes. And then in the midst of all that, my mom gets very ill. And she did almost die. She was ill for a couple of years. And it, it turned out to be from tainted... Vitamin supplements, L-tryptophan <gasps> supplements. Oh
1: my god! And, and she was
0: part of class action lawsuits. There were some people who died from it. Some people who were permanently paralyzed from it. It was a whole thing.
1: Jeez, yeah.
0: So that was all. Hap- that all happened in my senior year of high school. And then the, she had to be on steroids for years, so she was a mess for a long time there. Yeah. So during that time, I was really unsupervised my senior year of high school, and some already percolating I think independent thought started to happen oh no I know right (laughs) let's not let those girls think for themselves so I had already started having conversations with my youth pastor who didn't quite know how to handle me about grace and law and if God is so loving why do we have all these why why are you so scared of all these other things That got me to, you know, again, the dangerous thinking for oneself. That that was already kind of in there. And then that being relatively unsupervised. So in night the spring of 1990 is when Pretty Woman came out. Oh, no. But I was 18. And all this stuff with my parents had happened. And I was basically on my own as far as trying <laughs> to figure out life. Because they had their own stuff they were dealing with. Yeah. And... My brother had a friend over. They wanted to go see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Because at that point, they had chilled a little bit about the movies, you know. And Pretty Woman was playing at the same theater at the same time. Uh Uh-huh. All my friends had seen it. They were talking about it. Uh Uh-huh. So I basically just announced to my parents, hey, I'm going to take... Todd and whatever, his friend, to see Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm going to see Pretty Woman. It's rated R. It's about a hooker. I'll see you later. (laughs) Took off. And and they were like, okay. You know, and I was like, I should have done this declaring thing years ago. Because (laughs) they didn't put up a fight. And after that, they pretty much never asked me again where I was going. So that was sort of my independence day, if you will. Uh Where I just said, I'm going to do my own thing. And they were like, cool so i went to i went to college stayed pretty connected in you know churches and i started to you know experience life people different from me that kind of thing as one does right for a year and a half i went out to eastern college now eastern university in the philadelphia area that was the first place i experienced People who were gay and Christian. This is early 90s. There was a group of students who were gay and really fighting to be recognized and fighting for their rights on campus. And the school came, had, to, had to acknowledge them, basically. Mm-hmm. And the school said, we draw a distinction between homosexual orientation and homosexual behavior. Mm-hmm. We don't condemn the orientation. We do condemn the behavior.
1: This was a Christian school you were at? Yes.
0: It's a Christian university still is. Yeah. So that's when I started to get that exposure to that community and those things. So I kind of watched and looked, you know, kind of saw how that went, saw
1: how that affected people there. Things were shifting as she watched and listened. She came back to Phoenix and lived with her parents while she finished a degree from Grand Canyon University in creative arts and worship with a voice minor, so church stuff. It was still tough at home, but she went back to that giant church she had grown up in, back to the music program she loved so much, and this time she found herself on staff in a coveted internship.
0: So I started returning to that church and being, again, very involved in the music department so that when I was in finishing up my degree at Grand Canyon. At the time it was founded as a Southern Baptist school. It's Christian, but it's no longer Baptist. But so obviously a lot of kids who did internships did Baptist churches, particularly that church because it was ginormous, the baptidome. So there's a lot of internships, even in you know sports ministry internships. In oh my the, gosh. Because sports ministry is a degree you can get. Okay, good to know. Yeah. I was an in- interning in the music department So I was helping with, develop the, you know, at that time, this is when the worship wars began, and we have contemporary services, contemporary worship musics, and um, traditional services with the choir and the orchestra, and then more of like a praise band type thing with drums and, you know, stuff. So we would do more contemporary stuff, like on Sunday nights and some other things. And so I was working with a guy they hired to bring more contemporary and pop music. Um, I also assisted this woman who directed the children's programs, and I would known her since I was three. And so while I was there, this is when my parents are going through some of the roughest time in their marriage. It was during that time. I'm not sure how much of this you want to put in. <laughs> how much of it I want to in. We'll see.
1: This is where things go awry. Where the abuses normalized within the dome power structure find a young and vulnerable Tiffany.
0: After having been through this roller coaster of the last few years and really never dealing with it emotionally, I was ripe for a predatory relationship. Yeah. And I experienced a predatory relationship with one of the pastors on staff mm-hmm. whom I had known since I was eight years old. He was married, had two kids. I was not the only person that he fooled around with. But again, that was part for the course of that church. And so he and I had had a relationship for about a year. Oof. Yeah. Then I finally called it off and I confessed it to this guy that I had worked with in the church office. And he said, You need to disappear. I said, okay, and I did. This guy told the main music guy, who was friends with him, Mm -hmm. and he confronted him and said, you can stay until you find yourself another job. So you better start looking for another job. So he experienced some consequences, but he got the gracious moving on to other areas of ministry exit, Right, and I had to disappear.
1: How did you feel when that relationship was happening?
0: I felt like it was my revenge on that church who would never let me do anything Mm. and never let me, um, because I knew I wasn't going to have a permanent job there. I knew that I was working my ass off for no money and being treated like shit. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, okay, this is what you're getting. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. And it felt very powerful. Right. In a place where you had no power. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What would you have wanted to happen with that pastor dude?
0: I didn't really care. It wasn't about him. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in love with him. It was not an emotional connection. Why did you confess it? I wanted it to be over. I was exhausted. Living a double life is exhausting mm-hmm. so i I was I was done just done.
1: This guy was a family church friend when Tiffany was growing up. He's sixteen years her senior, so yuck. But we can't forget that there's a structure built for this. There's networking and normalization of this behavior. These guys attend the same schools or churches prior to even ending up together. So in this case, the creepy cheater choir director knew the predator pastor guy and brought him in. And that guy was good friends with the youth pastor who allegedly had relationships with students and was finally called out publicly for his, quote, affairs in 2007. This is no big reveal. This is how megachurches operate. Too much power, no accountability, and the ability to hide in plain sight. And I'll just add, it's the natural consequence in any organization where only men are in leadership and women can't or shouldn't exercise the gifts that they have. It leads to abuse, objectification, and egos run amok. But let's get back to Tiffany. Tiffany. For the next couple of years, she focused on taking care of herself.
0: I went to therapy immediately.
1: <laughs> I was like,
0: this is not something I want to repeat. Mm-hmm. Let's deal with this. And, you know, it took a couple of tries to find a good one, but I did actually find a really great therapist. And so she really helped me through those first few years of kind of figuring things out. Mm
1: hmm. She moved out of her parents, worked some retail, worked at her dad's print shop. But she kept looking for her dream job. Then at 26, she saw a posting for a church children's music director. And she wanted it. But had her past ruined her opportunities? Miraculously, she got an answer to that question.
0: I, I have had moments where I've definitely heard a distinct message to do something. One of those was when I applied for that job as children's minister after I'd had that debacle with the thing. I had attended a service at that church. They they'd announced that position was open, walking to my car. And I got a very clear, it's time for you to go back to ministry. And I heard that voice distinctly.
1: The message was heard loud and clear. But people don't always line up according to what you believe God wants you to do. This person that
0: I originally confessed to and who told me to disappear, we were in touch a couple of times after that. He recognized that I was working on it and was doing, you know, whatever. And so when I went to apply for this church job, he said he would be a a reference. And then for some reason, two weeks later, he said, no, I won't be a reference. And if they call me, I'll tell them everything that happened. I don't know what the hell. Weird. So I set up a meeting with a pastor and I said, I'm going to tell you everything that happened because I'm not going to let someone else come in and tell you everything that happened. Yeah. His background was marriage and family therapy. So I told him everything that happened. He's like, you're hired. Hmm. So that was a re- very gracious moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very gracious moment.
1: It was just part time, but she loved it. Then one day, working in her dad's print shop, a friend strolled in with a proposition she couldn't resist. Okay. A Christian band. Oh, okay. But like
0: a rock alternative band. Like, he was always into the most fringiest, coolest alternative music stuff. Uh They toured a little bit, had a couple of albums. I want to say they had a couple of Dove Awards even. (laughs) You know, the Christian Grammys. Or at least nominations. And... They did the music for the high school camp at Hume Lake Christian Camps. Uh huh. You know Hume Lake. Oh yeah. From being from Fresno. And he came into the office because my dad's business printed a bunch of their swag or whatever. Okay. And he came in and he goes, Hey, you're a singer, right? And I was like, Yeah. He goes, Our female singer just dropped out for the summer and we're leaving in ten days. You wanna come sing with us for the summer? And I was like, all right. (laughs) So literally in 10 days, I learned all their music. I packed in my apartment, you know, left all the jobs, left the church, everything, packed up and moved to Hume Lake for the summer of
1: 1998. Oh, my gosh. Yes. (laughs) And that's how I moved to California. She was performing at Hume Lake Christian Camp in 1998. So I just missed her. I went to Hume Lake every summer from 1989 to 1996. It was totally awesome, and I loved it. And I'm retroactively jealous that Tiffany got to be in the band. Hume Lake Christian Camp hosts 2,000 people per week. And since this is relevant information, I took a look at their speaker lineup for summer, which included seven white men. The board of directors is comprised of 14 men. I'm not going to take the time to look up each one, because we already know those evangelicals are white. Anyway, well, how was the singing with the oh, band? Oh, it was so much fun. It was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. What was your favorite song that you sang?
0: Actually, there's one that I, re- I listened to recently.
1: Was but... it Lord, I Left Your Name On High? No, no, no. It was all their original <laughs> songs. Original songs? <laughs> of course we did some what? of that
0: stuff. We did some of that stuff in the in the services with the kids. Right. But no, this is the band is called Everybody Duck. Okay. Okay. Their big, most popular song was called Susie's Diet. Uh, okay. And it was basically a story about a woman named Susie who was overweight, and she really wanted to lose weight, but then she worked at a all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> it was hindering her weight loss progress. And so the message is you can't change your life and change your behavior if you're continuing to put those things in your face all the time. Uh-huh. So it was a lot of that evangelical talking points wrapped up in really cool music. Gotcha. But there were also some really good ones that were not quite as like that. There was a song that they did about pride, and the lyric is Every day of my life, pride and I fight a war. God supplies me with little, but then I beg for more.
1: And
0: And it's basically, it's about the prayer that the people that you're ministering to would see God and not me. Mm. It's actually one I listened to recently because I do coaching and consulting and I, I work with a lot of people, even just casually who are part of the gay community and who feel broken and feel the need for acceptance and so even outside of my you know evangelical world I still, I still want to be the love of God for people who feel excluded mm-hmm. and so some of those moments still come back to me and I still listen to some of those songs they help me because I know how to make it mean what I want it to mean <laughs> mm-hmm. I wouldn't prescribe them for other people to listen to but it, it works for me
1: Pick me to speak for him here While touring around that summer, she had a big question in the back of her mind. What was next? Was there a job out there? Could she stay in California? So anyway, that summer
0: we performed at basically the equivalent of Lollapalooza for Christian bands <laughs> uh, in Monterey. Okay. But we performed during the day at some of the side stages and then we did a worship set that night. And at that worship set, I met some people from a church in San Francisco who happened to be looking for a children's ministry director. Oh, wow. Okay. I met these people and I moved to San Francisco and I took a job at that church. First Baptist San Francisco. Okay. Oldest Protestant church in California. Okay. Big gold dome on top of it. Oh, Yet another Baptidome. Right. I can't stay away from them. No. So that church is actually, interestingly, duly aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention and... American Baptist Churches of the West. American Baptist Churches ordain women. Yes. I did learn that recently. Not so much with the Southern Baptists. So that was interesting. But because it was a Southern Baptist Church affiliated, it was connected to the Southern Baptist Seminary, which was was in Marin County, Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. And so I was recruited by... Seminary people who went to the church to come be a seminary student, which I'd always kind of thought about doing anyway. Uh So I then moved up to the campus, and I was a seminary student up there, and I studied basically church music, worship leadership. And so
1: you're like 26 at this time. 28. Okay, so you're a little bit ahead of halfway through your life. Yes. What do you believe about God at this point? Well, you know, here's the thing.
0: My beliefs about God and my trust in God is not something that has ever moved around. That's always been the most centered solid thing about me. Where I struggle to trust is people. I'm sort of a god is never going to fail me. These people on the other hand, you got know, to you got to watch out for those. But I've always had a very strong faith in God and connection to God. So now my belief about God as in who God is, I can only describe as continually expanding and getting bigger. So as I see things, experience things, see people. People that I was raised to believe were horrible. Then I meet them and I go, yeah, they not so horrible. So then I go, oh, they're part of, they're part of God's thing too. They're part of God's thing too. So really God gets bigger and infor- and enfolds more people and more situations and still remains my center and my constant. Mm-hmm. So, I begin to say, is it really wrong for this? this, Are these things really wrong? Can we really look at this? Is this really sinful? How much of this is cultural sinful and how much of this is biblical sinful? And as the list of sin, bad things gets shorter and shorter for me (laughs) as I read scripture, I I think I would say I probably, I fully transitioned into the the liberal I am today (laughs) at the Southern Baptist Seminary. Because, ironically, the focus for Southern Baptists is scripture, scripture, scripture. We love the Bible. We read the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And so I did. I read the Bible. I took Hebrew. I took Greek. I read it in its original languages. And as I read the Bible, I'm like, y'all are doing it wrong. (laughs) You asked me to read this thing. So I'm reading it. And it's telling me that you're way off. And so I really began to make that switch in the home of the Southern Baptists because they were so bent on me reading the Bible. And because I read the Bible, I became a liberal. (laughs) Because I studied Jesus, I went progressive. And so I was less and less popular (laughs) because I was a woman who asked questions. Mm -hmm. There are two least favorite things there in the Southern Baptist world. Women. (laughs) Women who ask questions. Even worse. (laughs) So I was actually in, for the Southern Baptists, a fairly progressive environment. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, that kind of all of that reading and questioning and especially original language
1: stuff, you go, well, wait, what now? Do you remember one specific thing that shifted for you during that time?
0: I think when I started to discover all of the feminine imagery in scripture, you know, Christians talk about the Trinity, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, right? Yep. In the Bible, in the scripture, both testaments... The Holy Spirit is always referred to in the feminine. Always. English Bible? Not so much. We're not really taught that, are we? Mm-mm. No, but that's, in the Hebrew, and the Greek, it's feminine. Holy Mm-mm. Spirit's feminine. I would say the, the, I think the big one, the big moment that, light bulb moment, and I'm not sure that it necessarily goes against what I was raised to believe, but it really solidified who I believe God to be, which then excluded a lot of what I was raised to believe. And that is, there's a refrain that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament, and it's also a couple of times in the New Testament, but it's, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so I was reading a book called God and
1: the something of the feminine.
0: It's Phyllis Tribble is the writer. The book
1: by biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble is called God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. We're talking about the Hebrew word for compassion. And she
0: she breaks down in the Hebrew the story of the two women who came to King Solomon about the baby. Yeah. So, you know the story. Mm -hmm. They're both prostitutes. They both have babies. One rolls over on her baby in the night and basically smothers it. Wakes up, finds a dead baby, switches it with the live baby, claims it's hers. So they go to King, they go to Solomon. It's my baby. It's my baby. So Solomon goes, get a sword, cut the baby in half. And the real mother goes, no, 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 wait, 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 just give it to her. And he's like, she's the real mother. Right. And it says King Solomon looked on them with compassion and it's the same word as this lord is gracious and compassionate refrain several instances in that story of this word of compassion and in hebrew all words start with three consonants and then you build endings and beginnings on them so words will have the same root and then you build endings and you know they kind of go all over the place but the root for compassion is basically the equivalent of the letters r h m rahem which is the same root as the word for the uterus. And so when you think about God's compassion for God's people, looks like the uterus. It is a strong muscle. It nourishes. It brings life. It lets go at the right time. Its whole job is to feed you and make sure you grow It doesn't punish. It isn't angry. It's all those good things that you associate with the uterus. If it malfunctions, if there is no compassion, there's death and illness. Mm -hmm. You know? It's an analogy that almost doesn't break down, you know? And so when I said that's who God is, that got rid of so much Mm -hmm. of that childhood crap. Mm -hmm. And not even is and family, just the whole environment of the Christian is the person who doesn't do da 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 and we don't associate with these people. You know, the Mennonites have a strong tradition of shunning, <laughs> and um, the shun was strong in our house. You know, there are people we shun, and so to say, not only do we not shun, but we welcome literally everyone, everyone, and so... Knowing that that's who God is, that strong, nourishing, compassionate person, that's who I want to be. And so I think about who I want to be in the world as, am I nourishing? Am I giving life? Am I letting go when I need to let go? Am I strong? Am I holding when I need to hold? You know, and that's where I learned that in the Southern Baptist seminary. And that's kind of, that's where my picture of God became clear. <laughs> and then since then, I've just, I've just said, let God get bigger. Let God be bigger. Let God show me who's, who's in mm-hmm. rather than who's out. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is toward the end of my time at first Baptist is when they built the LGBT community center across the street Mm. and so it was a how are we going to minister to these people while loving the center and hating the sin you know all of that stuff and I remember sitting there listening to that going oh that's such bullshit like how to just love them as humans full stop like why do we have to qualify it and so once I left there I ended up landing at Mission Bay Community Church which is PCUSA, Presbyterian you know, Presbyterian Church mm-hmm. USA. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different kinds of Presbyterian. This is the left wing one, and it was the first time I'd been in a church that was openly welcoming and affirming to people of all gender identities, sexuality, uh, relationship status, whatever, and it was amazing, <laughs> amazing. And that was the first time I was I was ever exposed to what it meant to be a Christian and be a liberal. Yeah. And that there are churches like that.
1: Could you explain what you mean by liberal? Like sure. in this context?
0: Absolutely. And you're right. That That's the whole.
1: When I talk about
0: liberal, I'm not talking about politics in this case. I am talking about theology. When you talk about liberal theology versus evangelical or conservative theology, the the big difference is evangelicals believe scripture is to be taken literally all of it and it's inerrant meaning there is no mistakes in it from all the times it's been copied and copied and copied it's not been changed and so creation is a literal seven days these are folks who don't embrace evolution of science because god said it was seven days and seven days even though the word yom for day could mean a day but it could also mean a really long period of time there's no one definition Mm -hmm. but they've chosen to cling to the 24-hour period so that's it noah that whole flood thing actually happened jonah actually happened swallowed by a, a giant fish spit out in the beach you know all of those things yeah all of it really happened it's all very literal whatever A progressive or liberal theologian would say, I 100% believe that those things could have happened because God is capable of that. However, most likely it didn't. And these are stories in the Bible that are intended to teach us about God and teach us about how God connects to the world. It is not a history book. It is not a science book. So we don't need to see it that way. And we don't need to try to prove it to be true. Just say, Maybe it happened maybe it didn't but we're not worried about taking it literally. we're worried about who does this tell us God is and how does this tell us to show up in the world
1: mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for explaining that yes mm-hmm. so that's what I mean is is ultimately it comes down to the view of scripture and do we take it literally or do we take it allegorically? I mean that's very <laughs> oversimplified but that's that's a lot of that's the majority of it.
1: For folks who have done some deconstructing, there are things that you no longer steadfastly believe. But it's not as simple as rationally saying, I no longer believe that. Those things are deep down in your psyche. You continue to carry them with you. It takes time and sometimes therapy to unwind those beliefs from your mental processes, your soul, and your body. For example, the Ouija board. Do I still believe for sure there is a literal chief satanic being trying to tempt and corrupt me? No. I have my doubts about that. But I'm also not going to f*** around and find out. No Ouija boards in my house. So Tiffany and I are talking about some of the, for lack of a better word, triggers that evangelicals and some of us refugees have. I still have the hangover
0: the evangelical hangover sometimes you know like I remember being in that church on Easter Sunday and the pastor who was still a good friend said I believe in a literal resurrection but you don't have to and I still was like uh, yeah you do <laughs> okay and I'm like okay maybe you but you do but maybe you don't but no, you do. You really do. But no, okay. But, you know, dude, dude. the The trigger
1: word, yeah. The trigger word hangover. Yeah. You're right. Is yeah. real. Yeah. Especially when you think about that song from the band of like protecting your mind and what yeah. you put into your mm-hmm. body and mm-hmm. mind and heart and all uh-huh. that. I feel like we're trained so well to be looking for those things mm-hmm. that it's like you hear one thing that might not be exactly aligned to what. Mm-hmm is the truth of God, and so you must shut down and listen no more. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Here's here's how I often describe this. Evangelical Christianity is addicted to certainty. They have to be right, because if they're not right, they have to be right, because it it involves eternity. So they have created a whole system to celebrate their rightness. And in so doing, they have taken the gospel, this message of everybody's in, everybody's left, the God of the universe created you for a reason, they've taken that message and turned it into information, the four spiritual laws, A, B, C, A, accept that you're a sinner, B, believe it, you know, they've distilled it into this stale bit of information that they can then leverage and broker to recruit people to come to them, Mm -hmm. come to their gathering. And then you come, you come to church, people sing songs about Jesus at you. And then that's evangelism. They've done little to no work. (laughs) They've just shared this bit of information. Come to our thing. We'll sing at you. Done. (laughs) I used to be part of part of the church band every Christmas Uh, one Sunday night we would perform in Union Square in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it was always more of the religious carols, but in a kind of a rock thing, but you can get away with that at Christmas time, right? Yeah. So one year after a lot of feedback, one year before we started the real thing, like as a pre-show, we did some fun Christmas carols. Like secular ones. Like Frosty the Snowman. Yeah, yeah, like that. I got the hate mail about that. We were so proud of this event that we were singing Christian songs in public and we brought our friends that we've been talking to all year and now we show up and you do Frosty the Snowman. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was like triggered. They were triggered. So triggered. And I wrote back and I said, if you believe that evangelism is you bringing people to Union Square to have Christmas Jesus songs sung at them, then you've missed the boat entirely. <laughs> You wouldn't know evangelism if it bit you in the ass, which I believe I did say. (laughs) And so don't come at me with, oh, you sing Frosty the Snowman. My my friends will never know Jesus now. You're going to put that on me? No, that isn't my responsibility.
1: (laughs) Triggers,
0: the triggers. Yeah, I still have them. But, you know, they're fewer and fewer. And I still will get... I'll, I'll be a little, you know, judgy sometimes. <laughs> because I'm just judgy anyway. But, <laughs> but when I get like that, I think about the book of Luke, which is revolutionary in that Luke, who wrote it, was a doctor and he was Greek, unlike the other gospel writers who were Hebrew. So he wasn't one of the in, you know, part of the culture. But he highlighted... Stories of healing, because he was a doctor. But he also highlighted women, which was unique. And the entire book of Luke, almost all the stories, the miracles, the healings, the whatever, are about people who were considered unclean by the religious establishment and were told that they could not participate. And Jesus said, no. He restored them. Physically, because culturally he had to, so they could participate. But basically said, you're worthy of participation. You're worthy of belonging. And so that's the woman who had the, quote, issue of blood basically hemorrhaging for for years. Mm -hmm. She's the one who touched the hem of his garment, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And he's going through this crowd of people. And people are pressed up against him. She touches just as close. Not even him. And he stops. I felt power go out of me. You know? <laughs> you know, who touched me? He was, who touched me? And Peter goes, dude, we're all touching you, man. Like, hello. And he's like, no, I felt it. And it was her. And he's like, you're whole, you're clean. You, you know, after decades of being left out of temple worship, which was the center of identity for the Jewish people, people of the book, you can go. You are, you're back in. You know, huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine the faith of that woman amazing, right? She's a rock star because she was had the courage to do that. Because had everybody known she was unclean and, t- and touching her, she would have been probably stoned to death. Mm-hmm. But the other piece of that is all of these people that were touching Jesus probably had something wrong with them. None of them were healed, but she was. This highlighting of women's stories, widows who were basically... Dead if their husband died because they had no income and they had no standing in society Mm. that he gave standing to. Children who were considered, you know, whatever, standing. We have Jesus pursuing people who the religious establishment have said, you're not good enough. Mm. That's what I see throughout the Gospels, and that's what I see throughout the Bible. So when I am, you know, raised in this context of, we have a clear boundary of who is in and who is out,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then I read scripture and I say, all I see is Jesus looking at those people who everybody else said was out and wanting to bring them in. I, I like that one better.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: that one makes more sense to me. So that's really where I get the progressive liberal, bring me more gays kind of a thing <laughs> because <laughs> I love them all. Let's let's do it. Yeah. Bring me all the gays. Bring me all the gays. (laughs) I shall have them, and they will be mine.
1: Her reading of the Bible drives her theology, and for better or worse, her experiences in the world impact her interpretation of what she finds there. This is true for everyone who has ever picked up that book. We read it through our own lens in time.
0: I am a white, straight, American woman who, while I did study those languages in seminary, that was 20 years ago. Please don't ask me (laughs) to read any Hebrew for you right now because I could pronounce it, but that's about it. Yeah. I read from the English because, you know, American. Right. And I try to have the humility to say, my understanding of scripture is limited because of who I am and what I bring. Mm Mm-hmm because i'm i'm a human who's limited and every single person in the last 2000 years who has opened scripture or unfurled a scroll <laughs> has had similar limitations their age their gender their culture all of those things are a lens through which we view things and god has been patient with that there's not been a lot of smiting after Jesus there's not been oh you all misunderstood this whole thing I'm taking out this entire village like that doesn't happen God has been very patient with our limitations around how we interpret scripture and has allowed us to do the best we can so I go this is what I think this says to me right now could be wrong don't know Jonah may have gotten swallowed by a fish God is absolutely capable of that whole thing Mm -hmm. and maybe not I wasn't there the story teaches me something, and therein lies its value. Whether or not it actually happened doesn't matter to me. My evangelical friends, that makes their head explode. Mm-hmm. Well, if that didn't happen, then do you think Jesus actually lived? Do you think he actually did the miracles? Yes, I do. Like, that's a straw man, dude. Yeah. Totally different conversation. hmm Yeah, it freaks them out to say... 100%. What if Job didn't really live? Job is the oldest book, the first written... And it was a story that was common throughout the area. Right. Probably didn't happen. Literally. I hope not. It was awful. Horrible. (laughs) No, probably didn't happen.
1: I think you have a good feel for where Tiffany is at with her faith and theology now. So let's go back to her roots. How her relationship with her parents has fared as the gap between their beliefs has widened get into anything with them either religiously or politically uh no i don't i i will talk
0: religion with them because i will say my progressive things to them but ground it in scripture and they cannot argue and they actually end up agreeing with me yeah they are not necessarily closed-minded people yeah politics no Because they're hardcore Republican, hardcore pro-life, hardcore anti-gay, the whole thing. So, no, we don't talk about that.
1: Now, it's interesting that you put the anti-gay piece with politics versus religion. Well, I think it's because they would.
0: Because of the marriage equality, because of the fight for equal rights. And they don't want to give equal rights to people that don't agree with them. Mm -hmm. All the while not believing that makes this a theocracy if we did it like they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Which is they want the country to be ruled by their faith. Correct. And so that's why I put it in there politically because they don't want there to be benefits for same-sex partners. They don't want marriage equality. They don't want any of those things to be the law of the land. Now it's, they'll say, well, if they want to do that, that's their business. But, you know, they, you know, they're very, uh, uh, the, the baker shouldn't have to make a wedding cake for a same sex wedding if they disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying, so is the baker going to question everybody's uh, sexual habits when they order a cake? Because they probably don't believe in premarital sex either. Right. But most of the people they're making cakes for are sleeping together or living together. Right. So, you're okay with that, but not the. Okay, sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, are you gonna have like a whole questionnaire about the sexual <laughs> habits of all of your customers? All your customers and only big cakes for virgins? Cause you'll be out of business. <laughs> like tomorrow. <laughs> for virgins. Uh, cakes for virgins. Just call that your store. <laughs> that should be the name of the title of this
1: episode. Yeah. Cakes for virgins. Yes. So you don't get into the political we stuff. We don't. It it's
0: we had we did one time a few years ago at Christmas and it was super ugly. So I have to just remind myself that I love them more than I disagree with them. And they are in their late 70s mm-hmm. and not statistically a ton of time left on the earth. You know, like we get along. There is there is an element when I visit them that feels very I I can't be myself fully. Right. And I feel that when I'm there. Yeah. But also, you know, I just <sighs> me expecting them to change is the same as them wanting me to change. And it's just as unfair. Mm-hmm. And I don't wanna I don't want to play the certainty card back at them and say, I'm right, you're wrong, when they're trying to say that to me. So I let them be who they are. They're people of their time and they're that's that's them. That's who they are. Mm-hmm. And I'm who I am.
1: After seminary, working in, and attending many different churches, Tiffany is pretty clear on what kind of faith community she doesn't want to be part of. But what does she think of the church now?
0: Uh, but yeah, I love going to different church services and seeing what they're like.
1: Yeah. I've always been like
0: that. Yeah. When I was like little kid, I used to play pastor in baptism. <gasps> like, I've always been a church dork, and I really believe that the church is the hope of the world. But we've got to get our shit together. So what do you dream? I dream always of acceptance and welcoming and reception, warm reception Mm -hmm. for everybody. You know, the Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit's job is convicting of sin, not mine. And so I'll let the Holy Spirit do her job and I will do my job, which is love. Mm -hmm. So my vision is a church that's loving. And because the church is loving, the church acts. Again, going back to Jesus. In John 12 or 13, I always get this confused, but is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet before the crucifixion. And in the NIV, it says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God, Took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. So that strong sense of identity and mission empowered Jesus to take on the lowest job in the house and to serve. What we are missing is identity and mission because we've made our faith about external proof, not about who we are. Mm -hmm. It's my identity my mission it isn't my behavior my behavior isn't is an outcome but it's not the end it's I need to be focused on who I am who does God say that I am and what is God calling me to do and then I'm going to do that if I have that sense of identity, identity and mission I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to do stuff even if it's the lowest job in the house and that's okay hmm But we've got this whole religious system that says being a person of faith equals all of these external things. And we don't wanna deal with what's inside you. We want you to just squash what's inside you and make sure everything looks right on the outside.
1: pinpointed the type of faith community I would want to be part of. No squashing what's inside you to look, think, behave like everyone else. Plus, yes, the love in action. Or maybe that inclusiveness is the love in action. Tiffany told me she had two moments in her life where God spoke in a very clear way. Here's the second.
0: I was at a lunch where a gentleman called Mark Iaconelli was speaking, and he, Mark, Mark and Mike Iaconelli are big gurus in the youth ministry, and he was speaking at some leadership lunch in Marin County at a golf club. <laughs> he's up there talking, don't remember much of what it's about, I'm out at this table, you know, I could see outside the golf course, and he's, everything kind of went silent even though it was really talking. And I heard very clear, I want you to be the pastor of a church. And honest to God, I looked around to make sure no one else could hear that. And then I kind of under my breath, I said, fine, but can I finish my chicken first? (laughs) Like right now? Like, what do you mean, you know? And so ever since then, I have always viewed wherever I've worked as my pastorate. And I was shown up that way because I'm not the pastor of a church and I didn't expect it would show up traditionally because I've never done anything traditionally. But I I really believe in that as a calling. And that came after that whole compassionate womb thing Mm -hmm. and kind of understanding what that means. And I think that nourishing, strong presence is who I'm meant to be in the world. And for me, that's a pastor.
1: Mm So she's not an official pastor, but a pastor is what she's chosen to be in her day-to-day life. Working a corporate job or doing consulting work. It's a mindset. But outside of hearing the voice of God, which in this series does happen, she also feels the presence of the divine.
0: Now, as far as like feeling the presence of God, singing on stage almost Mm -hmm. every time. Yeah. I'm leading a worship service. Because I've I've gotten really clear glimpses of what it can mean to get to do that for eternity. And it's pretty cool. Singing and leading worship is really something that can do that for me. I had someone say to me one time, you're not an easy person to get to know, but when you sing, I can see into your soul. Mm. And that's true. I feel like musically, I connect with God a lot. I listen to a lot of worship music because... It helps with my state of mind. It helps remind me who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And that God has something bigger for me. Sing me something. Sing you something? Yeah. Look at you. I mean, like, you know, 10 seconds worth. A performing monkey. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um my jesus i love thee i know thou art mine for thee all the follies of sin i resign my gracious Redeemer, my Savior art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now.
1: I thought maybe you were gonna sing, "Pharaoh, Pharaoh." Oh no! Again, <laughs>
0: oh baby, <laughs> I was past that. That was that was my maybe my brother's because he's like five you years messed younger. Out. But you messed I, I, I I just missed the Pharaoh Pharaoh window.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite kids ministry song? No, I hated all those. <laughs>
0: um, those are <were> terrible. <laughs> so you just do those big and stupid because that's what they are. Yeah, big and stupid. Big and stupid. Yeah, it's like. Okay. I am a C H I I am a C H R A S T I A N. Yes, I am. And I've C H R A S T in my H E R T and I will am a C. Okay, I think we got that one. That's that one. That was a
1: good one. Tiffany is currently attending a variety of online churches, in between her morning coffee and afternoon Peloton workouts. She does want a more permanent faith community, with other folks who are clear on their identity and mission, and act out of that. The evangelical megachurch culture allows bad leadership to hide in plain sight. There's typically no system in place to prevent leaders from getting in their own way, making terrible decisions, or doing whatever the hell they want. Excuses are made and grace freely given when pastors make mistakes or much worse. That is abundantly clear to me. But after this interview, I reached out to Tiffany because I wanted to know from a victim of this system, what is the solution? What's the fix? She said the answer is for us to stop elevating people to this level, for churches to not measure success by the number of butts in seats, the size of the sanctuary, or the number of zeros in the annual budget. Those are all American cultural values, not biblical values. From her perspective, the Bible defines success for Christians as becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So she said instead of focusing on size, dollars, book deals, and the like— What about how many feet have we washed, literally or metaphorically? How many people have we welcomed who were on the outside? How many of the least of these have we fed, clothed, and housed? If churches were actually focused on what Jesus said they should be, this kind of crap, the abuses, the egos, would happen a lot less frequently. Tiffany said that out of all the churches she's attended, there were only two that avoided the type of sexual scandal or abuse that we talked about. So let's make a note in our solutions bucket. Both churches were small and allowed women in leadership. Join us next time to talk to Tiffany's bestie, Kenny. Growing up, that was always kind of hard. It's like, okay, for all the
0: black people that were, as my friend Tiffany would call them, regular black people, uh, it
1: was like I didn't fit in because I was the African kid.